You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and happy Hanukkah. It's great to be with you all and to bring some of the Hanukkah light into, uh, as Shana said, into our lives and uh, to light up this Hanukkah. So uh, thank you, Rabbi Yehuda Cohen, for joining us. Rabbi Yehuda and I go way back, uh, knew his family in the old country, and uh, we, our paths have crossed. And uh, most recently, he was a uh, guest on the Sunset series a number of months ago uh, in the context of his uh, peace work uh, with Palestinians in the West Bank. And it's great to have you back again. So a little bio, Rabbi Huda Cohen is a West Bank Jewish peace activist and educator. As a leader in the vision movement and a teacher at several yeshivot, he works to empower students to become thought leaders and active participants in the current chapter of Jewish history. As a founder of Alternative Action, he organizes grassroots dialogue for Palestinians and Israeli activists seeking to transcend competing one-sided narratives in favor of a more scientific analysis of the factors forcing both peoples into conflict. So he's very active in what's going on today, but I know Rabbi Yehuda, you also have a wide breadth of understanding of Jewish history, and in a sense, you're living Jewish history. So um, I understand that you live near the sites uh, where some of the Maccabee strongholds were. And tell us about that and about your story of Jewish, of the Jewish people, your own story of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me and inviting me to be your uh, Hanukkah speaker. That's a big honor. Uh, Hanukkah is um, a festival that's very close to my heart, very close. You know, my soul is very connected to this energy of Hanukkah. I don't live near Maccabee strongholds. I live on. Like, I actually live in the partisan camp of the Maccabim from the time the revolt started, meaning right after Matityahu and his son left Modin, like right after the revolt began. Um, they came here to the hills of Gofna which is right next to the Yishuv of Betel. Although in the Second Temple period, it's important to note, we didn't call this place Betel. We called it Gofna. Uh, we were actually, the, the children of Israel were embarrassed to call what we know today to be Betel, Betel, because in the First Temple period, a king named Yoravam ben Navat built a golden calf here as an alternative to the Beit HaMikdash, as an alternative to the Temple in Jerusalem. So as a result of that, we just felt uncomfortable calling this Beit El in the Second Temple period. So we called it Gofna. One of the reasons we call this area Gofna is because the best wine in the country comes from here, this area. Not just here, here, but I'd, I'd go up basically, you know, in a, in a, um, you know a, a few kilometer radius of here is really the best wine. Um, and so we called Gofna, like Geffen. And these were the hills where the Maccabim initially um, trained their army, trained a bunch of farmers and scholars and tanners and glassmakers to become guerrilla fighters. And it was actually on this mountain um, where Matityahu left our world. Like Matityahu died on the uh, 15th of the month of, a month of Cheshvan. It was like a little over a month ago, the 15th of Cheshvan. Matityahu left our world, and uh, it was here on this mountain. We have the caves here. We have the guard towers. We have the uh, olive presses and the wine presses. Um, and by, and by the way, I can testify to this. I went to visit Rabbi Huda and his family, and uh, uh, 50 meters 
walk, uh, he showed me some of the spots. And here I'll show you the picture. Uh, that's right near your home, correct? Yeah, that's a short walk away from my home. That's an ancient guard tower um, on like the top of the mountain from where, you know, farmers 2,000 years ago were doing guard duty, uh, protecting the Maccabee partisan camp while others, you know, planned their battles, Davin Shachrit, you know, trained for war, whatever it was they were doing, you know, somebody was probably always up in that tower making sure that the Greeks weren't getting too close. So um, the Maccabees were celebrated warriors, as we know. So how do you see that playing out in the Hanukkah holiday? And we celebrate and emphasize the miracle of the oil and the candles, not the military victories and prowess. Why do you think that is? Will the Jewish spiritual tradition always de-emphasize power and military achievements? Well, I actually don't agree with the premise of the question. Because I think that uh, in our tefillot, you know, when we say al-hanisim, the emphasis is definitely on the military battles. Uh, the Rambam certainly emphasized the military battles. I think there certainly was in the time of, in the time of the Mishnah, because we were living under Roman rule, and because the uh, Zealot movement and different anti-Roman, you know, Jewish freedom movements were taking their inspiration. Uh, from the Maccabee movement, and I would even make the argument that the Zealot movement and then later Rabbi Akiva were really the um, ideological heirs to the Maccabee movement. Um, and I think that there was a, a very careful de-emphasis uh, by our sages at that time not to antagonize the Romans who were certainly looking. At the time that we were writing down the Mishnah, there were certainly Romans who were very interested in what we were writing. And So, uh, and so you're talking... Uh about 350 years after the Hanukkah story. Yeah, give, give or take. And I think that, uh, I mean, the Hanukkah story is a long story, meaning it's a 26-year war. But, uh, but there was definitely, while we were living under Roman rule, there was definitely, a, uh, certainly in terms of what we were actually writing down and, and making available for people to see, there was definitely a very cautious uh, de-emphasis of any you know, anything that could be mistaken for us wanting to fight the Romans to free our land. So I think that that's, uh, but, but if you look at, again, if you look at the actual tefillot, what we say, you know, the additions to the Amidah, the additions, the additions to Birkat Amazon, Al-Nisim, the emphasis is clearly on the military victory, on the story of what took place, Matityahu and his sons. And at the end, we do speak about the oil, obviously. And I think the oil is important because the, the way I look at it, at least, is that the miracle of the oil lasting eight days was really um, was really just like a divine stamp of approval on the entire war, meaning that we were able to appreciate the fact that all of the the battles were really were really miracles from this like one kind of uh, uh, you know open miracle that was uh, you know undeniable. You know, one could argue, e even though I think that the, the, you know, when, when people think about the Maccabees taking on the Syrian Greek Empire, it's not like, you know, some people might compare it to the Israeli army, you know, fighting the United States today. That's not what it was. It was more like the Hilltop Youth taking on the United States, meaning it, it was like really, you know, almost impossible. Like nobody thought this could work, but it worked. And it worked. I mean, it took 26 years to work, but it worked miraculously. 
and the oil was really kind of where you see the like um the 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 stamp for those who couldn't see the 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 um hidden miracles in the battles they saw the open miracle with the oil and it was i mean it was really a guerrilla warfare i mean at the beginning at least right i my my mountain stopped being the headquarters actually in the Hanukkah story, like the Hanukkah story, meaning the actual rededication of the temple after the battle of Beit Sur, which is just a little south of Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, um, and the miracle of the oil, that's actually when my mountain stopped being headquarters of the Maccabee movement, because then they had liberated Jerusalem. So obviously they, they moved the revolution to Jerusalem, like that became the new headquarters. But until the liberation of Yerushalayim, this mountain was really the headquarters uh, Greeks did not want to come, you know, did not want to journey through this part of the country. Uh, there were a lot, you know, it was it was a very scary place for Greek soldiers to travel through. Uh, this was all forest at the time. Much later in history, the Ottoman Empire cut down most of the trees. But this was all like very forested, you know, mountains, which were really dangerous, full of ferocious Jewish guerrillas that were just looking to, you know, to make an example of, of any Greek soldier wandering through. So let's uh, turn the focus here and ask, are there any lessons uh, we can learn from the Maccabees for Israel today? What does it mean to have a Jewish army? And can the Maccabees teach us something about that and about the Jewish people taking our own fate into our hands and Jewish power, as we call it? Well, well, I'd say, first of all, uh, Jewish people are still in a process becoming complex power. We haven't had in 2000 and that makes it uncomfortable. And I think when you look out of the political, especially security related political arguments within Israeli society today, I think a lot of them have to do with the discomfort um, we have collectively with power. Some people want to overuse it. Some people are really just uncomfortable with touching it at all. Uh, but, you know, we're still, I, I still don't feel like the state of Israel or the Jewish people as a, as a whole is dealing with, with power in a way that's confident, in a way that just kind of like is confident in, in who we are, what we can do, and, and therefore able to just really define our own, like, interests and pursue our own agendas, you know, disconnected from who we want to be friends with or, or what other things might be happening, what, what other agendas might be influencing us. And I think that's a problem until you define your own interests as a nation, until you define your own interests and you define your own agenda, you end up being kind of tugged along with other agendas. And I think that's something we have to be careful of. Um, also, when we talk about the Maccabeam, uh, and this is maybe relevant to the parshiot that we're in right now. You know, we just, you know, from we're going from Vaishev to uh, Miketz. You know, it's really the story of two of Yaakov's sons, Yehuda and Yosef. These are really the main characters of these parshiot. And Yehuda and Yosef, you know, from a uh, Kabbalistic perspective, really represent two different forces inside the nation of Israel. I think uh, Yosef very much represents. Um, the side of us that is very concerned with the material well-being of the Jewish people, um, you know, things like security, economy, uh, being able to build armies and build economies and, and build states. You know, we, we very much relate to, as a student of Rav Kook and the Vilna Gon, I'd say we very much relate to 
uh, the Zionist movement as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, the physical, material rebuilding of the nation of Israel and its land. Um, and Yudah represents the content. Yudah represents that which makes us separate, what makes us different from the rest of the world. While, while Yosef is very focused on what we share in common, with these especially dominant nations, Yudah is very much focused on what makes us unique, what makes us different, what's our culture, what's our destiny, uh, what, what's our message to the world. And I think that the, th this is, by the way, a theme throughout our history. You could see it in the first temple period, you could see it today in the state of Israel, but I think you could also see it in the Maccabean period. And uh, I, I would say that the internal conflict between the Hellenists and the Maccabee underground was really a conflict between maybe extreme expressions of the forces of Yosef and the forces of Yehuda, meaning those who really thought it was in Israel's material interest to be allied to the Greek empire, to be part of the Greek empire, to, to engage Can in Can you just culture. explain a little bit about the Hellenists? Yeah, so... Um, the story leading up to the revolt was a story in which uh, Antiochus IV uh, was very interested in uh, homogenizing his empire, all peoples and countries and cultures that were under his rule. He wanted them all to adopt this kind of one-size-fits-all, you know, Greek Hellenist culture. Um, that doesn't mean they had to abandon their own rituals or values, but it had to exist alongside at the very least. And for the most part, all of the peoples living under Greek rule did so, except the Jews uh, or certain sectors within Judea. And this was a, a certainly a point of frustration for Antiochus, for the emperor. But um, ultimately what did happen is the, I, I would say, you know, what I described as an extreme expression of the force of Yosef, but we can also say maybe the more of the elites of Judean society were uh, enticed to really kind of go along with Greek culture, Hellenist culture um, that had different manifestations. You know, in some ways it was the Olympic Games, um, the pantheon of their gods, all sorts of things. But for the most part, I would say even most of the Jews at that time who bought into Hellenism were still what we would today call like quote-unquote orthodox Jews, meaning they were still kind of putting on tefillin in the morning and, you know, and uh, making brachot and, uh, you know, and, and all that. But they were doing it alongside. The way Ruf Cook actually describes Hellenism is, you know, they had Jewish ritual, but with a Western worldview. You know, they had like, a Greek... Doesn't the book of Maccabees talk about some who tried to reverse their circumcision? I mean, some did go very far, no? Well, eventually it did get there. Eventually it, it kind of got to the point where there were some very extreme expressions of this that even went as far as trying to reverse their circumcisions, sacrificing pigs to Zeus. Like, like that's where it kind of ended up in, you know, in the period right before the revolt. And that's really when the revolt broke out. There's actually a, a disagreement over how the revolt started. According to the Book of Maccabees, yeah, they brought to Modim, where Matityahu and his sons lived, they brought a, uh, a statue of Zeus and a pig to sacrifice. They wanted Matityahu to perform the ritual. Uh, he refused. Someone else was about to do it. And then he killed the guy and killed the Greek officer. And then his sons and the whole village basically killed the whole Greek garrison that was there. And then they came up to my mountain. But there's another version of this story um, that's actually uh, our sages tell us you know, one of the, um, you know, in this period leading up to the revolt, 
there were very, very, very harsh um, laws meant to separate us from our culture. They banned the learning of Torah. They banned circumcision. Uh, penalty of death, by the way, for these things. They banned the Rosh Chodesh. They banned our calendar. They banned Shabbat. Um, and what one of the laws that they enacted was uh, on the night of any Jewish wedding, the bride would have to spend the night with the local Greek uh, commander, like the whatever Greek officer was in charge of that region. It was, you know, it's called prima nocta. It's uh, something that empires back then would do, you know, to their subjected peoples or troublesome subjected peoples. Uh, anybody who's seen the movie Braveheart is familiar with this. And, uh, you know, and, and this is something that was happening in Judea. And there is a story for how the revolt broke out, that there was a wedding. And uh, apparently it was Elazar, according to some opinions. It was Elazar, the son of Matadiahu, who later gave his life in the Battle of Beit Zachariah, uh, killing an elephant, which were like the tanks of the ancient world. But he wanted to show that these elephants could be killed. And he stabbed one from underneath and the elephant crushed him. And now the Jewish community of Elazar uh, is named after him, which is built right there in Gush Etzion. Uh, but apparently it was his wedding. And the bride, uh, who knew that she was going to um, have to spend that first night with the Greek officer, uh, she was very troubled by this. Now, we, because, you know, we had been living under Greek rule for over a century at this point. And, you know, the op oppression doesn't usually come all at once. It usually kind of boils slowly. And, you know, we, you know, one thing after another, we kind of got used to living under their rule and feeling there's nothing we could do about it, to the point that we were even making uh, halachic justifications for just letting this prima nocta thing go on. And, okay, halachically she was raped, so it's not really considered, you know, the, the man could still be with her afterwards, although it's problematic for Kohanim, and we know that Elazar ben Matatiao was a Kohen. Uh, but apparently she, at her own wedding, uh, tore off all her clothes in front of all the guests, in front of her family. And uh, the family was very angry uh, to the point where they were maybe on the verge of becoming violent. And she said to them, oh, you're willing to fight for your honor uh, when, I, you know, when I do this at the wedding, but you were about to let the Greeks take me for the night. And when she said this, Matadiao and his sons understood, according to this Midrash, that, um, that she's right and that we need to fight. It's not enough to make halachic justifications for it's okay to let our women be taken. We need to fight and uh, stop our women from being taken. And that's one version of how this revolt began. So you spoke before about uh, the two strands, uh, Yosef and Yehuda, mm -hmm. and the military, uh, physical building of the Jewish people, and then the spiritual uh, side of the Jewish people. And... Uh, so in terms of the dynamic between the two, are there times when the Torah circumscribes Israel's military capabilities? In other words, when Yosef is doing his thing, how much does Yehuda have a say in it? And, um, and you know, if you could bring it more to contemporary times as well. Um, and before what you said about uh, Jewish power and knowing what our goals are and pursuing those. Uh, we're not here to be political tonight, but if you want to use, you know, more current uh, present day examples, feel free to. And, um, and then uh, as a kind of secondary to that, what should be the ethic and the morale of a Jewish soldier? Is this informed by the Torah? Is it simply, you know, we've got to 
fight, uh, level the playing field in the way that everyone else does? So I would say, first of all, um, Yosef is generally a lot better at building armies than Yehuda. In fact, uh, Yosef is the part of Israel's identity that is able to be like Esav. And that's, uh, that's really important because, you know, initially we learned that um, Yitzchak wanted to, he wanted Yaakov and Esav to work as a team. Like Israel was, so, was supposed to be the combination of Yaakov and Esav. Yaakov being the idea man, being the spirit, and Esav being the doer, the leg man, you know, building the army, building the nation, you know, being able to kind of bring this message to the world. And uh, what Rivka saw within Yaakov, that he's able, he's capable of doing it all on his own without Esav, was really manifested in Yosef. And even when Yosef is born, Rashi tells us that Yaakov knew he'd come back to the land of Israel and confront Esav because Yosef is in the world. And uh, the prophet Ovadia, who actually is a descendant of Esav, who then later joined the children of Israel, uh, he says that um, Yosef is actually the power within us that can defeat Esav. He likens Yaakov to a fire, Esav to straw, and Yosef to the flame. Uh, so it's complicated because on the one hand, Yosef is the part of our identity, is the part of the nation of Israel that wants to be the most like Esav. Our sages identify Esav with Western civilization. So we can say Yosef is the part of our identity that wants to be the most like Esav and resembles them in many ways. Uh, today, within the nation of Israel, we can call Yosef Tel Aviv. No offense, I know this is a Tel Aviv-based program, but you know, Yosef is like Tel Aviv, and that's not bad. Yosef has, a, has an important role. Um, but, uh, but the irony is that even though Yosef is the part of Israel that wants to be like Esav, it's also, it's also the part of Israel that could defeat Esav. So Yudah is the spirit, Yudah is the values. The way the, the Gona Vilna explains it is that Mashiach ben Yosef is supposed to build the state, right? Uh, anybody who's interested can check out the book Kol Hator. It was actually written down by one of uh, the, the Gona Vilna students, who's the great-great-great-grandfather of our president, Ruby Rivlin. Uh, Rav uh, Hillel Rivlin, Mishlov, was the uh, actual student of the, Gra, the, the Gona Vilna who wrote this down. But the idea is that the Mashiach ben Yosef is the physical, material return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, the building of our, na the building of our nation, uh, everything about what we're building here, everything about us that we share in common with other nations that looks like, you know, just another state, just another flag at the UN. Yudah is the content that is eventually supposed to guide that vessel. That's eventually supposed to kind of animate and direct um, the army and the government and the economy and, and everything else. Uh, in terms of, you know, so, so Yosef built that. Yosef built the army. And uh, now you see that in Israeli society, like you said, not to get too political, there is a cultural conflict between, I would say, I, I would actually make the argument that um, labels like left-wing and right-wing or religious and secular are actually very, very foreign labels to the Jewish people. I don't think they really fit our culture or fit our identity. I think those are actually very uh, Western labels that are born out of Christian civilization. Like in Christian Europe, you can say somebody is religious or secular. In Israel today, it, it doesn't really work that way. And I don't think it ever did. Just like in the uh, first temple period, 
I think there were, you know, shepherds who got up early in the morning to daven shachrit, and there were shepherds who didn't. And uh, but that didn't mean a guy def defined himself as chiloni or dati. I think that it was usually just like a spectrum and a fluid spectrum, and, and you see it in Israeli society today that most people's, you know, personal level of observance tends to, you know, go, ha have uh, ups and downs depending on what's going on in their life and depending on, you know, what's happening in, in the country, et cetera. So, um, but, but I think that the real defining uh, distinctions within Israeli society, it's not about left and right or religious and secular, but it's really about uh, those of us who are psychologically living in Jewish history, and that we can call Yehuda, those of us who are psychologically living in Jewish history and understanding current events uh, within the context of, you know, things that have happened before in our national story, ways our ancestors and heroes have reacted to these things, um, as opposed to those of us who might be more Yosef, who really are living psychologically in 2020 in Western civilization. And, and some of us can do both. You know, some of us are able to kind of oscillate between the two and, or simultaneously hold both. Uh, we, we don't have to be dualistic about it, but I think it's important to notice that when we hear our politicians argue or we hear our journalists argue or we, we look at any major event being debated uh, within Israeli society, any public issue being debated, it's usually an expression of a deep conflict between those of us who are living psychologically in the contemporary Western world versus those of us who are living psychologically in Jewish history. And uh, the force of Yosef and the force of Yudah. And ultimately, it's important for both sides to realize that we need both, that Am Yisrael really is comprised ideally of both forces, but, but the forces have to learn to work together. And that's really been a challenge for us. It was a challenge for us in the first temple period. It was a challenge for us in the second temple period. And it's a challenge for us today in the state of Israel. How do you get these forces of your definite not to actually complement each other, work together toward historic mission of Am Yisrael? Okay, thank you. First of all, um, I'd like to tell everyone, if you have questions for Rabbi Yehuda, please feel free to post them on the chat and they'll be posed at the end. So... Um, you talked about kind of uh, some of our own people being uncomfortable with Jewish power. Uh, mm -hmm. Why do you think Jewish power is such a loaded issue in terms of our own peoplehood? And why, when we defend ourselves, are we held to a different standard by the rest of the world uh, than any other country would be? And what should Jewish power mean to us? Why is it so loaded in the rest of the world? Well, first of all, I think um, power, and this is where Yudah becomes so important, force is important. I think what Yudah has that Yosef doesn't is a good reason for why we should be comfortable with power, meaning an actual goal we have for the world, like a vision for what this world is supposed to look like and how the reborn nation of Israel can help bring the world there. And I think if you have a clear perception of your goal, of where you want to take the world, of, of what you're trying to achieve beyond defense. I don't, the, the truth is, I think for the nation of Israel, the defense is considered like a very uh, shallow reason to fight. I think we're deeper than that in our soul. We're much deeper. Like our own self-preservation isn't enough to motivate us to use power and hurt other people. I think we need to have a bigger goal in mind. Uh, and I think that makes us more comfortable with power and that comes from Yudah and not Yosef. 
Um, but at the same time, in terms of why we're judged, you know, I'll, I, I don't want to tell you why I think we're to the standard, but I'll tell you what one of my colleagues in Ramallah says to me. Uh, he says, we know that Israel doesn't behave any worse than, uh, than Egypt or Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or any of these countries. Like, like no one thinks of you as behaving worse than, you know, no, certainly not Saddam Hussein when he was ruling Iraq or, or, or any of these other kind of regional countries. Or uh, is, how about the United States and Afghanistan? I mean, there was a lot, lot going on or, there. Or the United States and Afghanistan. But, but the reason he said, he said the reason why the world holds you to a different standard is not because you're Jews and everybody's an anti-Semite. He says, it's because unlike everybody else, you're the only one trying to pretend you're something you're not. Because here you are, another Middle Eastern nation, just like us, trying to pretend you're white, trying to pretend you're part of the Western world. And yeah, we all know, like you said, the United States and Afghanistan, we know the hypocrisy of the Western powers and the way they behave, um, you know, while pointing the finger at, uh, at, at easy targets like Gaddafi or, or bin Laden or, or any of these characters. But at the end of the day, Israel tries to hold itself, tries to appear, tries to present an image that's more like the G-rated caricature of benevolent, you know, neoliberal Western powers, while at the same time, really just being another Middle Eastern country confronted with Middle Eastern challenges, dealing with a hundred-year-old ethnic conflict. And, um, you know, I, I think it's an identity crisis. At the end of the day, I would say that not only are Palestinians victims of our identity crisis, I think we're a victim of our identity crisis, and our discomfort with power comes from that. I think the more we reconnect to our identity, the more comfortable we will be with power. And the more we'll know how to use it properly. Meaning, and power doesn't just mean violence. Um, and even violence, I would say, you know, obviously we're, like I said, we're, part, we're experiencing a 100 year old ethnic conflict where we shouldn't be so naive as to think that we're, you know, that violence is never, relevant. You know, violence is something that we have to use often. But I think even when we're using violence in order to solve our problems, we have to be able to acknowledge the difference between violence that's productive and violence that's counterproductive. Violence that creates the conditions for us to be able to make peace tomorrow versus violence that actually eliminates the conditions to be able to make peace tomorrow. Like what the kind of violence we're using says about our identity. And one thing that I would say that separates the Maccabim from our army today is the Maccabim used violence that was unmistakably the violence of the like quote unquote native savage, a guerrilla army fighting to free its land from, from foreign occupation. Whereas I think one of the problems with our army today is we're often stuck in a situation where we feel forced to adopt Western uh, methods of oppression, very colonial tactics that only reinforce a lot of the accusations that many of our critics uh, make towards us. Meaning if we, if we find solutions to our security problems that resemble uh, colonialist solutions, then it becomes very easy for our critics to point at us and say, you see, Israel's just this Western outpost in the Middle East, just a settler colony uh, created by a bunch of Zionists from Europe instead of realizing that we are the children of Israel that came back to our land after 2,000 years of refugee status. Okay, thank you. Um, 
Any last comments about uh, what you think uh, Hanukkah means for us today as Jews in general? Well, it's the light. I would suggest everybody uh, gaze as much as possible into the lights of the Hanukkah. We're told that it fills us with emunah for the entire year to be able to see the world through a, through a perspective of Torah, emunah, if we're really lucky, maybe even something approaching prophecy. And uh, really to be able to think about this distinction. You know, when you look at um, you know, different political or, or socio-political or cultural conflicts within the Jewish world or Israeli society. Don't think of it in terms of right and left and don't think of it in terms of religious and secular. Really try to think of it in terms of, well, who's really living psychologically in the historical context of the Jewish people's story spanning thousands of years and who's kind of relating to these issues just based on what happens to be politically correct right now. And it doesn't mean either side is 100% right or wrong. I think both actually are valuable perspectives and both have their place. Um, but ultimately, uh, to be able to kind of harmonize, we have to think about how these two perspectives can kind of merge together ultimately. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Rabbi, I'm going to open the floor to questions if you don't have anything else. Sure. Uh, we're good. Thank you, Rabbi Yehuda. Thank you, Rabbi Yehuda. That was very interesting. And I did not know about the story of the young woman who uh, disrobes herself at her wedding. And if I did know about that story, I haven't revisited it in a while. Um, I know that the this used to happen to Irish women um, from oppression from England, that the Englishmen used to do this as common practice to young Irish wives. So um, very, very insightful there. I would love for everybody to put their questions into the chat right now. We have plenty of time for questions. So please put your Hanukkah questions, your history questions, your religious questions here. I'm going to kick us off um, with a question going back to that moment. I found it very inspiring that this um, woman had to take to this such an extreme uh, moment of uh, such an extreme display in order to get her brothers and, and tribes to rise up. Can you talk a little bit more about that moment? And you mentioned that there were some other um, concepts of what started the rebellion. Can you share those with us as well, Rabbi? Uh, well, yeah. First of all, I think that both stories could definitely be true. I don't think that we have to choose one story or another. You know, the, the book of Maccabees, records the story that it records, the Midrashim record what they record. Now, now sometimes I, I acknowledge that sometimes Midrashim are not meant to be taken literally, uh, but they're definitely supposed to teach us something about ourselves. You know, even if we don't take a, any given Midrash uh, literally in terms of, um, in terms of like this actually is a historic fact, this is what took place, you know, our sages still mean to teach us something uh, that we need to know about ourselves when they, you know, give us these midrashim. So whether or not this actually happened at a wedding, uh, we're still supposed to take something from that. We're supposed to, still supposed to learn something from that. And we do know that prima nocta was something that was taking place. Um, and again, you know, there, we, we're talking about a situation, you know, until the Maccabean actually began fighting back, we're talking about a situation in which nobody thought that possible. You know, it's not like we had an armed force. It's not like we, uh, we, we hadn't been fighting really. I mean, we, we hadn't been fighting since the Purim story, 
and that was kind of a one-off since we lost our sovereignty, you know, at the end of the Judean kingdom. So this was, you know, it, it had been roughly a, over a hundred years since we'd fought anybody, you know, or, or certainly a, a foreign conqueror. This was a huge step. And yet, even though my wife happens to be very critical of uh, the Maccabean for not fighting earlier, you know, when these women were being taken, I think, you know, you have to really give credit where credit is due and recognize that what Matityahu and his sons did was not just, you know, kill a few Greeks or, or thousands of Greeks, but they actually uh, changed the psychology of the Jewish people. You know, before that, even Jews who were trying to resist Antiochus's oppressive decrees were doing so passively, you know, hiding in caves, celebrating Shabbat. But when the Greek army would find them, they would die rather than fight. Whereas Matityahu actually made the halachic ruling, we fight even on Shabbat, which is the halacha, like which is actually the halacha down till today. In fact, a lot of our military halachot today come from examples that we see both in Tanakh and also in the Maccabean revolt, things that were done. We also know that Yudam Maccabee was the war priest. He was the Meshua Melchama. We see over and over again him playing this role of not just commander of the army, but war priest, meaning he would you know, give this address to the troops beforehand, inspire them many times, almost every battle. We were up against superior numbers, sometimes elephants, meaning like there, there was a lot to be uh, afraid of. And, uh, but we kept winning, you know, one battle at a time, winning, winning, winning. Yudo was also to his credit, a brilliant uh, tactician militarily. And he was able to use the geography and topography of our land as a weapon against the occupier. You have to remember that the Greek uh, training was a uh, phalanx. You know, they would kind of get into this kind of like turtle formation with their shields and, and their spears, and it was almost impossible to penetrate. So what the Maccabim would do under Yehuda's leadership was they would, first of all, lure them into very mountainous ter terrain, which is like around here anyway, um, kind of rain arrows down on them. The Greeks used to call it Judean rain when the entire sky would kind of fill up with short arrows and just kind of like rain down on the Greek soldiers as they marched through. But we'd often uh, force them to walk through these very, very narrow valleys where their military formations wouldn't be effective, where they wouldn't be able to kind of like form that, uh, that like phalanx formation. And that would give us an opportunity to kind of storm down ferociously from the mountaintops and just kill them. And that's how we fought. And we basically used the land as a weapon against, uh, against any who would, uh, who would come in and anyone, anyone we found in the Greek uniform. Do we know um, exactly how many Maccabim there were? It changed because there was a large, first of all, there, if you're talking about the family, there was Matityahu and five sons. Um, the only one who was surviving after 26 years of war was Shimon. Shimon was the last surviving son of, of Matityahu. He's the one who actually declared full independence, and it was his descendants who created the Maccabean dynasty, the Maccabean kingdom, the Hasmonean kingdom, which is problematic for a few reasons. Number one, they're Kohanim. They're from my tribe. They're not supposed to be kings, um, and they shouldn't have taken the kingdom for themselves. Uh, but also, one thing we can see uh, is that they, you know, whenever a nation achieves independence, liberation, 
they really need to have what we'll call a post-colonial conversation. They really need to have a national discussion over what our identity is now that we have political independence, what values and identity should be expressed through the policies and institutions that we're gonna be creating. They didn't do that. We can see they didn't do that because of some of their policies and also because of some of the names they gave their kids. We see a lot of the Hasmonean kings who came a couple generations after the revolt um, were giving their children Greek names. And that ended up giving the Roman empire an, you know, a, a way in. And, uh, and ultimately they were able to defeat us. And even though we did fight back uh, heroically and ferociously against the Romans many, many times, we were not able to beat them. Uh, and they ended up really destroying our entire national framework. So had we housed colonization, freeing our country from the Syrian Greeks, maybe we would have been stronger and prevented the Romans, specifically Pompey, from being able to, to come in and uh, take over our country. And I think that's relevant to today also, because even though we defeated the British Empire in uh, the 1940s, you know, according to official British documents, the empire left because of Jewish terrorism, which basically means we beat the British in a war. We forced them to, to withdraw from our country. But what we ultimately did, and by the way, to be fair, not the freedom fighters, but the politicians who had actually in many cases been collaborating with the British, once the British left, those politicians basically took down the British flag, the Union Jack, and put up a Jewish flag on the British colonial system. And that's one of the, one, one of the challenges of the state of Israel today is it's still very much a structure as a British colonial system, but with Jewish decorations. Uh, and by the way, India has the same problem. India also had to free itself from British rule. And a lot of the institutions, a lot of the, um, the, a lot of the structures, the, the regime of how India is, is organized is very British and very foreign to Indian culture and, and to the civilization there. So we're about to head into our fourth election in two years. And that is partially because we're still functioning in a system that's a little bit foreign to our identity, foreign to our culture, foreign to our mentality. And we haven't yet had this post-colonial conversation where we get to really discuss what happened to us, because something happened to us. We were refugees for 2000 years and we were experiencing in many cases, very harsh and very traumatic persecution, which obviously altered our identity, altered many things about our culture. And when you, and you can't heal, you can't just declare political independence and expect to be healed. You need to actually address what was done to you. We need to have a national discussion and we need to talk about what kind of society we're trying to create here, what are the goals of that society and what identity and what values should be expressed in the policies and institutions of our country. Um, yes, absolutely. You, as an Ole, you, you feel those institutions, those old institutions, when you're actually going into these offices. Trying, yeah, the bureaucracy, when you're trying to get things done, it's literally systems um, that are antiquated and that even the people who are running them themselves are like, I'm sorry, I, I can't manage this system. Um, so that's a really, really interesting. And I, I believe as somebody who's lived in Israel, um, who lives in Israel, true. We have another question from Sam. He wants to know, what happened to the Jews who collaborated with the Greeks? Was there reconciliation or usual punishment? Were they 
and then this is coming from me, were they ostracized by the community, celebrated? Was there pressure to assimilate? Was there pressure not to assimilate? What, did, what was that like? Well, I think it depends who and when, because we're talking about a very, we're talking about decades. So when the revolt started, uh, I would say it, it appears that the majority of Judean society passively went along with the Hellenists. At the very beginning of the revolt, the Maccabim were considered a very radical, very fringe, uh, you know, terrorist organization, essentially. And most of the population wasn't with them until they started winning. And that's interesting, you know, about not only our society, but I think most societies, once people start to see a little bit of victory, they say, wait a minute, like, these guys are strong, these guys could actually win, uh, we're going to support them. And I think a, a lot of the population might have felt um, naturally inclined to go along with the Maccabee approach, but just didn't see it as realistic or possible or pragmatic. So, you know, there are, there's a lot of the population that I think shifted allegiance during this entire period. And once Yudha Maccabee was killed and his brother, Yonatan, the youngest brother, Yonatan, uh, took over leadership of the revolution, he worked very hard to transform uh, their movement from kind of just like a terrorist organization to a political party with a military, you know, with, with an armed wing, et cetera. Uh, but they, they were able to reach people a, a lot better. And I mean, the conditions had changed, but there were like the hardcore Hellenists who were really like ideologically driven, believed in Western civilization, believed in the Greek way, as Rev Jonathan mentioned, even tried to reverse their circumcisions in some cases, uh, they were essentially banished, ultimately. They're banished from the country once Shimon, uh, who is the last brother to lead the uh, revolution, once he destroyed their fortress. There was a fortress called the Hakara that used to be very close to the Temple Mount that the Greeks built for these Jews. And these Jews would kind of be, you know, as, as the Maccabeem kind of started to win more and more victories, the, the like hardcore, the more extreme Hellenizers kind of, you know, found refuge in that fortress and kind of stayed there. Uh, one, the land became unsafe for them ultimately. And uh, once that building was destroyed, they were forced to leave. Uh, but the more what we'll call moderate Hellenists who were just kind of going with the flow, you know, with society, media, whatever, they, for the most part, I think, ended up just switching sides to support the Maccabeem. And the Maccabeem were, were national heroes for many generations, even though some of their descendants, you know, didn't govern properly. They were still like really perceived as heroes, uh, especially later when the Romans uh, essentially orchestrated a coup where the, where the Herodian dynasty kind of took over. Um, the, the populace was really, really um, nostalgic for the Hasmonean family. They were, they were like very, you know, and, and I would also make the argument, you know, th there was another group, something we didn't touch on. Mo in the beginning, the majority of the Maccabee fighting force was actually coming from a group called the Hasidim which should not be confused with the um, students of the Baal Shem Tov today, like Chabad, Breslov. When we say Hasidim, we don't mean what we think of when we talk about Hasidim today. The Hasidim back then was, you know, like the, a lot of the Rabbanim, like Torah, you know, a, a lot of the rabbis and their followers, that's the Hasidim. Because the Greeks had outlawed circumcision and, and Rosh Chodesh and Shabbat and the learning of Torah, these Jews were ready to fight. Uh, but there came a point in the war 
when, um, when it was clear that the Greeks had lost enough that they were willing to let us have those things back. They were willing to not mess with our internal culture. No more prima nocta, no more outlawing circumcision, no more forcing us to sacrifice pigs to Zeus. And the Hasidim were okay with that. They said, okay, fine, great, we won. Whereas the Maccabim said, no. The Maccabim said, we have an obligation from our Torah to fight until our land is free, till we're not part of the empire anymore. And, uh, and that, you know, later on, the Ramban, Nachmanides, will say that explicitly, that we have a commandment in every generation to fight to liberate our land from foreign rule, um, and also that we're not allowed to give up any of our land to foreign rule. And uh, even in the Shulchan Aruch, and Evan Ezer Simon Ayin He, the Pitchei Tshuva there says that all the Rishonim and all the Achronim rule according to the, by, according to the Ramban on this issue. Uh, and, but this was the position of the Maccabim. And they said, we have to keep fighting until our land is free. It's not enough to just regain uh, Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh and Brit Milah. These like concessions and policy are not what we're fighting for. We're fighting for the freedom of our land, for the freedom of our people, to be able to govern ourselves and to build our own civilization here. And so I think that that um, later on in history, when the Romans were here, we can say that the Pharisee movement uh, very much kind of went in the path of the Hasidim, whereas the Zealot movement very much went in the path of the Maccabim. And when I say the Zealots, I'm including, you know, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, um, you know, all of the anti-Roman agitators. Um, you know, there, it, it doesn't mean either was more Torah observant than the other. Uh, they just had a different approach to this question. Even Josephus says, actually, Josephus says explicitly the only difference between the Pharisees and the Zealots was that the Zealots believed that we have an obligation to fight until our land is free. Okay. Um... Uh, amazing. It's always uh, 2020 is hi- hindsight is always 2020, right? You can, you, you can only sometimes see what's going to come out of something that's disturbing the peace until it already happened and, and you got the results. So that's a great takeaway. Now I want to wrap up this session, but I would love for you to address one more question as maybe sort of a statement or a message that we can take with us into these last days of Hanukkah, into um, the new, I don't want to say the new year because it's not, it's only the new year on the Gregorian calendar, but following Hanukkah, moving ahead, what do you, can you tell us a little bit more about how we as individuals could use power in a Jewish perspective in our current situation? A lot of people are uh, struggling mentally, emotionally, work is difficult, doing basic things is, is blanketed by um, this worldwide pandemic. How can we take our Jewish power and what should we be doing with it? Well, I, I think as individuals, um, I mean, obviously all of our situations are very different and, and there's no answer that will really address what everybody is going through. But I, what I find helpful is to remind myself always, no matter what situation I'm in, that, you know, uh, we're living in one of the most amazing and climactic chapters of Jewish history. And, uh, you know, very much I see myself, especially living on this mountain, um, you know, in the Maccabee partisan camp, I very much relate to myself as a character in a later chapter of the same story that they were characters in. 
And I think when you kind of put everything in perspective, the, the hardships become a lot easier, uh, you know, to bear because you realize that you're living in a, you know, as a character in a great story and a great chapter in that story. You know, we could have been, we could have been chosen to live 200 years ago where Jewish life basically meant, you know, stay from, stay alive. Or, but we were chosen to live now where there's a lot more going on and there's a lot more opportunities. You know, we're, we're living in, a, you know, Zionism created the conditions for everything that we're able to accomplish now. And I think that's really what we should be doing as individuals, thinking about what is the meaning of history? What are the goals of Jewish history? What are the goals of the Jewish people in history? Uh, what, have, what, what goals have already been achieved? What's left to achieve? What's standing in the way? And what can we do as individuals? By the way, we can come to different conclusions. Not everybody has to come to the same conclusion in terms of what, you know, what the goals are and what's in the way. We can all come to our own conclusions, that's okay. And uh, that's part of our identity, in fact, you know, they, we're not all supposed to agree. Nobody's ever suggested that the Jewish people are supposed to agree on anything. But we should definitely, and, and I would even argue that the reason why Zionism was so successful was because you had so many rival ideological tendencies that were constantly competing. And the friction between their, their rivalries actually kept propelling us forward. So now also, I think we all have an obligation to kind of examine our chapter of history, think about what the goals of the Jewish people are right now in this specific generation, ask ourselves how we can personally participate in achieving those goals. And I think the friction between all the different conclusions we come to and the activities we take upon ourselves will probably propel our people forward. Thank you, Rabbi Yehuda. Uh, we really appreciate your coming on and your inspiration and your uh, Hanukkah messages. And uh, thank you, Shana. Shana, you want to wrap it up? Uh, any last yes. comment? I'd love to wrap it up. Um, I want to thank everyone. I know that there was one last question from Igor. Maybe you'll be able to uh, message Rabbi Hakohen separately. Um, we don't have time for it today, but I just want to thank everyone. And I'm so glad that so many people came to participate and learn in the Hanukkah story. I love the idea that we are all characters in the story of Jewish history. And I just want to remind everyone that each person here and each Jew today is a part of Jewish history. No matter how small or insignificant you may believe that you are, you are really paving the way for the next generation. And we are living in historic times so I think that it's, it's important to keep an eye on the news, all the positive things that are happening for the state of Israel. And um, I hope that if anybody has a Hanukkah wish this Hanukkah, that they shall get it. Um, once again, I'm, I want to put a couple of links into our, um, into our chat. I want to put in the link. I, 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 yeah. I, I just want to tell people what's coming up next week, and then we can put uh, where they Go can ahead. find so next week, uh, we go back to our Sons of Abraham series, and we have one of the leaders of the African Hebrew Israelites of Jerusalem community, uh, Minister Amiel ben Yehuda. Uh, their community numbers some 3,000, mostly in Israel and other locations as well. And he's going to talk to us about uh, the African-Israel uh, connection and about the community that they have uh, here in Israel and throughout the world. So that's the next 
in our Sons of Abraham series, which will be continuing on Monday nights. Incredible. The, um, the Sons of Abraham has been very successful and very exciting. We've had so many interesting uh, speakers for this. It's a mini series um, within the Sunset series. So the Sunset series we host on Monday evenings. And I encourage everyone to bring a drink or something to Nash because it's supposed to be fun. Um, so the Sons of Abraham have been a mini series with interesting communities around Israel that you may not have heard from before. I learned about the Samaritans last week. I never knew anyone of, of that faith. So that was very cool. I have put here in the chat, my personal Facebook page, as well as the tribe Tel Aviv Facebook page, which I would love you to like this way. You can get notified whenever we are having a new event. Um, Rabbi Hakohen also put the link to visionmag.org, which is an excellent magazine with a lot of really thought provoking content in there, audio written, um, a lot of really things with a different angle that you might not have seen before. So I encourage everyone to reach out, like us on Facebook, come again next week and um, have an excellent, excellent Hanukkah. Hanukkah Sameach. Hanukkah Sameach, everyone. Thank you. Thank you again, Shanna. Thank you, Rabbi.